1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Jennifer Weisenfeld about her really gorgeous and very thoughtful new book, Imaging Disaster, Tokyo and the Visual Culture of Japan's Great Earthquake of 1923. This was published in 2012 with the University of California Press. Now, this is a book that is about a very local event, a very local, particular place in time and space, and that is 1923 in Japan, and the aftermath, and the aftermath that actually um, extended quite some time um, when taken on from the perspective of looking at the reverberations of a visual archive and of visual tropes that were developed in response to, um, in different ways and by different kinds of people and in different forms, the disaster. But although it's a very local case study, the ramifications of Weisenfeld's book, are very broad. This is a book that's not just about Japan at a particular moment in time. It's about how to use images as a kind of archive for telling a story about the circulation of ideas and forms of knowledge. It's about human responses to disaster. And it's about the different ways that a very specifically intermedia, transmedia dialogue emerges after major events and becomes, not just in this case, a national story, but an international story. It's an extraordinarily rich book, and we had the um, added benefit, and for me, really a pleasure, of talking in person at the National Humanities Center about the book. Um, It's totally a pleasure. I can't recommend the book highly enough, um, and I hope you enjoy both that and the interview to come. We're here today to talk with Jennifer Weisenfeld about her new book, Imaging Disaster, Tokyo and the Visual Culture of Japan's Great Earthquake of 1923. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Jennifer, and thank you so much for meeting me to talk with the book today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of modern Japanese visual culture in general? Well,
0: um, I, as an undergraduate, went to Kyoto and lived in Kyoto for a year, and that's where I kind of caught the bug for Japan. And then uh, when I went back a year after graduating, I realized there really weren't many people at that time working on the modern period. It seemed like modern history, modern politics, modern economy. These were things that everyone was interested in, but where was the visual? There was nothing there. And it was right when the Japanese art market was picking up in the 80s, and there was a lot of interest in the contemporary art market, but nobody who was historicizing or putting any kind of dimension to it that took it back perhaps into the 19th century. So I kind of took it upon myself to be that interlocutor for that for that area, and then turned out that a lot of people are interested in that, and that field has really grown and from Meiji all the way to contemporary in the last 20 years, so it's, it's been great to be part of that. Great.
1: Now, the book itself that we're talking about today looks at how different media produced what you call modes of seeing, understanding, and remembering the Kanto earthquake of 1923. So how did you come to this topic in particular, and how does this fit within the larger trajectory of your work?
0: Well, my first book was on the Japanese avant-garde of the 1920s, and I got interested in that, interestingly enough, in a comparative seminar in graduate school on the Weimar period in Germany. And, of course, the Weimar matches up with the Taisho. It matches up with the 1920s. So I asked the instructor, can I write my paper on Japan in the Taisho period and look at the international avant-garde? And that generated my thesis, my dissertation topic, on a group called MAVO, who were uh, active, and it turns out, active spanning the great Kanto earthquake. So their work was deeply inflected and influenced. In fact, the earthquake experience radicalized their politics and their aesthetics. So, um, so that book, um, that dissertation became my first book on Mavo. And uh, what I realized in the course of doing that was that the story of the earthquake was so much bigger than modernism and the avant-garde. And that's an important aspect of it. But that the responses were in, in visual responses in particular, but of course literary and, and in every sphere, um, the responses were so vast and so voluminous and so diverse that I really wanted to show this story in a in a in its broader, more heterogeneous kind of. Uh, Context And so I didn't immediately go back to this. I kind of joke, this is actually book three, uh, but book two is still waiting to be written. So this is turned into book two. And uh, it's just been that period is so vivid and so, um, so interesting that it just kind of drew me back in. and, And I think this just, in a sense, felt like it was writing itself.
1: Now, this is a book it's for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to look at the book it's gorgeous um and Thank it's you. not only. Really interesting in terms of the the arguments and the, the different threads of the central arguments that you're developing through the chapters. But it's also just an amazing and amazingly diverse visual archive itself. Yes. Um, that's you know in which the the images are really central parts of the argument. They're central parts of the text. They're not mere illustrations. So thank um, you for saying that. <laughs> oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's it's, it's yeah. really an amazing book, and it's really a pleasure to look at and to. Um, As a historian, and and for listeners and hopefully future readers, maybe, if they haven't yet come to the book, who are not necessarily trained in or used to engaging visual materials as part of a historical argument, Mm. it's really a model, I think, for how to do that. Thank you. So because, as you've mentioned, the responses to and reactions to this earthquake were so diverse. And Mm. the sources that you brought to the study also are extraordinarily diverse. I mean, it's the the kind of visual culture that you're looking at here and looking at in depth and really fine resolution ranges from photographs, film, scientific visualization technologies like graphs and diagrams, seismograms, maps, prints, paintings, sketches, (laughs) cartoons, sculpture, exhibition spaces, and architecture. Okay, so it's an extraordinarily wide range of sources. Can you say a little bit about how you built and managed research in that diverse an archive of materials? What was that process like for you?
0: Sure. Well, thank you for saying that, because I do think uh, that this, for me, is very much image-driven scholarship. And you're exactly right that the images are not illustrative. They do not just reflect the event my one of my main arguments is that images and visual production produces knowledge, and it, it mediates the way we understand things, that that's constantly in flux, and that it changes over time. And so what images do is they both produce tropes, they crystallize iconic imagery, and then they solidify and codify particular narratives over time. And so it was very important to me that, that the images... I was thinking in a kind of visual narrative itself, so I'm, I'm really glad and, and felt very grateful that the C- University of California Press and Duke supported this, because it's not easy to work with images in the age of copyright, and so I think that's that worth mentioning, that it's not easy to do this kind of study with this kind of images, but I was very dedicated to it, and it was important. Uh, but going back to your original question about working with a vast visual archive, it's daunting. It really is. And... Um, And even up until the point of writing, I was still finding new caches of of images. If I can digress for a second, one of the things that I found that was so exciting was this large cache of visual satire, which I hadn't worked on in the first iteration of the manuscript, but realized was so important. All of the manga, the cartoons, the caricatures, I found this group of images that was just stunning. And when you look at the social networks, you realize the same individuals are circulating. They're very much aware of each other. And so I use this concept of intermedia that people, and this is the way artists work. This is the way cultural figures work is that they know of each other. They're responding to that world of visuality. And so it was deeply enmeshed in the other kinds of visual production, but also a window or perhaps a some kind of Glimpse of the vox populi in a way that you couldn't have with other types of images, say fine arts, for mm-hmm. example. And so, for me, getting that that granular, that multi layered, that diverse and heterogeneous kind of view was so important. And um, keeping it all, keeping track of it all, was was always a challenge. And, and even selecting images was a challenge because we're talking about tens of thousands of images uh, in every medium that you can think of, and of course. Uh, the, the memorial itself, which is uh, a living space and, has, and continues to be there in Ryogoku today. So that itself is, is the subject of one whole chapter. Um, so I don't know if I can answer it easily. How, how does one do that? I guess uh, one tries to database those things and, and keep them. And I, what I really looked for was patterns, patterns of repetition, because I, uh, Certain images were repeated in one place and then another and another, and to me, the circulation was important. Not that just, yes, there are some singular images that are just stunning and jaw-dropping and they really say something, but also there's something about the mass reproduction and circulation of images that tells you about their currency. And so looking at that helped me select. And so slowly you winnow it down, and you you narrow into certain things. And then of course there's personal taste, things that just uh, really strike you. Um, but I was I, one thing that, in terms of the the media aspect of this, was seeing 1923 as a particular moment in history when all of these media coexisted. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they do today. I don't think anyone would say nowadays that woodblock prints or even lithographs, or any, or even painting have currency like photography, film, or digital video. We we have transitioned into a very different kind of age, um, a discourse of the real and then a questioning of the real, but this is a moment when those media coexist, and that's what made it so exciting, and I think they all live in this world together.
1: Do you think, and this is just something that comes to my mind just from what you've been saying, mm-hmm. do you think there's um, a kind of Maybe not partner study, but a, a related study of this phenomenon that um, could be done exploring other kinds of media, so sound, media of sound. I mean, did you, in your research... Um, for the book, even though you were focusing on images, did you find that there was a kind of broader sensorium at work that, I mean, that comes definitely into play in the book mm. to, you know, to some extent, but is there a book to be written on the sound landscape of 1920s Japan? Or? I, I'm not
0: sure. One thing is that radio was not prevalent at this time. Mm-hmm. It really is after the establishment of Joac, and I think, I don't know the exact date of that, but I'm guessing more like 1930. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, There's a soundscape of 1930s Japan that would be very interesting to write about. But in 1923, it feels very silent. And... All of the films that I that I used were all silence. Anything that was talky was this, the the sound was either added later or it was made after 1930. Mm-hmm. So my sense is that that's one the auditory component, except for its description and its evocation, perhaps through synesthetic elements, which is evoking sound through um, something more bodily, something somatic, where you would. Or, or the evocation, to, you know, one thing that Japanese is so great at is onomatopoeia, where they have these words for sounds. And so sound was there, and of course earthquakes have oh, fearsome, horrible sounds, mm-hmm. and they do evoke this kind of terror in your body. And so I tried to bring that up in the sensorium as it was, but actual audio, not so easy, easy mm-hmm. to find during this time period. And, and someone may correct me on that, but I didn't come across much.
1: No, that's actually something. Um, looking at there are just as a related note um, for listeners who might be interested in the broader sensory landscape of perhaps the first half of the 20th century in Japan. There's some interesting work being done, but on a later period on telegraphy and radio and and the engagement with. Right. Um, with that, but this is, I think, one of the really interesting things that you bring out here is not just the the silence, and in your descriptions of the film, that's really um, that's really striking. But also, and we'll get to this. As much as um, the book is about visibility, it's also about invisibility, and that's yes. a really important part of the story. And we're definitely we'll definitely talk about that. Okay. Oh, just to pick
0: up on that issue of telegraphy, it was the earthquake for Japan that convinced the government that they needed to invest in the telegraph because it really was the only mode of communication that wasn't completely knocked out. And it saved hundreds of thousands of lives because the ships that were moored in Yokohama Harbor were able to get information out to bring in uh, assistance in in many ways. So uh, in infrastructural investment in the telegraph lines that were under, trans I guess they were trans-Pacific lines, that was something that was technologically was direct uh, effect of the earthquake experience. That's
1: fascinating. (laughs) So one of the, um, before we get into the body chapters of the book, the preface of the book starts out by situating what's happening in 1923 um, and framing it within the more recent 7.9, I think you say, magnitude earthquake of the 11th of March, 2011. And this Mm -hmm. is something that will be recent, um, very recent history to most listeners. How centrally did that series of events and did that disaster impact the way you approach this material? I know this probably happened late in um, in the game, but can you talk about that relationship? Um, Because it, it does frame right from the beginning the way we read the book. Absolutely. And
0: in fact, the Kanto earthquake was 7.9, but the Tohoku, earth, Tohoku earthquake was 9.0. So it's on an order of magnitude oh, that's, right. that's, um, that's right. uh, almost unthinkable. Um, but of course, in an area much less populated than where this hit. And so, of course, location is everything. But right. forgive you, me. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. I just think that that's, it's, when you think about the levels of magnitude, it's also right. really important. But yes, in fact, The earthquake hit when I was in the final phases of putting this in production, and and I felt obligated and and needed to write a preface in some way, but also very cognizant that this was an unfolding event, 311, Mm -hmm. and that I did not have the historical distance. I'm a historian. I feel very, very keenly aware that we... Wait and see how things unfold. And the temporal aspect of my book is a critical element. So I didn't want to jump in and start. Uh, prognosticating about how things were going to happen. It's a different place. It's a different time. And, of course, the nuclear dimension is so different. But what I did think I could comment on and what really struck me being a person who works in the visual is the continuities of certain kinds of iconic motifs. And even in radically different kind of media, the ways in which landscapes of ruin, images of sorrow and grief, uh, memorial, even makeshift memorializations – uh, banners for missing family there are some things that just seem to continue to travel and have currency and resonance now and so i felt very comfortable commenting on that kind of continuity of the visual lexicon of disaster mm-hmm. and how that's become universalized through and part of the the epilogue also talks about trying to bring that up through history so that was that was something that i felt comfortable with but i also felt that in many ways we 're in a constant perpetual cycle of disaster reporting. This is the nature i don 't think that it wasn 't that there wasn't there weren 't disasters before this, but the media aspect the twenty four seven media aspect pretty much puts disaster on your table every morning and it and so it's always a timely topic, and I didn't need to capitalize on this one particular disaster in order to see the ways in which disasters is ever-present, and we need to really think it through in the ways these images that are constantly bombarding us, even now, the way they make us do things, the way they make us feel about those particular events and how they motivate us to... to understand those events, because I think we still are processing those. So that was kind of the intention of the preface, but very leery about (laughs) standing in any way and, and giving meaning to that. But
1: now, one of the things, um, one of the themes that you raise in the context of putting or framing, um, at least for a moment, and we thought with the caveats that you mentioned that this is a story about time in a particular place in a particular time that's very different from what happened um, in 2011. But you do raise a theme that will recur in the case of the 1923 earthquake, and that is the way disaster brings class and regional inequities into relief, that also becomes yes. a really um, a really key feature of um, the, the the discussion of images and responses to and um, attitudes toward and ways of, of engaging with the 1923 earthquake. Can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. And I think you only have to look at disasters around the world to see that the disenfranchised, the poor, um, regional areas they just suffer more. the disasters the idea that disaster treats everyone equally is it, and you often hear that people will say that particularly governments will say that everyone is equal in the face of disaster because nature knows no it knows no class restrictions it, hit, it hits everyone, but that 's not really true. And what makes a disaster often is the socioeconomic and cultural context in which a natural phenomenon intersects with human existence. And so if you are poor, if you live in bad conditions, if you live in regional places where you have nuclear or any kind of waste sites or anything, you're more vulnerable to the collateral damages the man-made components of what any natural phenomenon brings and so we're not all equal in the face of disaster and disaster does in a sense hit uh, people much harder that's not to say that rich people lose don't lose things but of course they recoup in different ways they have different they just have many more avenues for for resources so it makes sense to think that
1: and that theme is actually that that Theme of class and regional inequality mm. is actually explicitly engaged in the visual language that comes out of the 1923 earthquake. And so we'll talk about that too. It's, it's not just something that frames the story, but it's actually... Um, it becomes part of visual responses to and engagements with the story and with, with reconstruction afterwards, and we'll, we'll see that as well. Absolutely. So um, as we move further into the book, the book, as we've mentioned, looks at the central role of different types of media. And so the chapters each look at, um, there's, there is... Overlap in circulation, but there are different foci in different chapters that um, use different media to look at different phenomena yes. um, in the visual landscape um, of responses to and engagements with the earthquake. And it looks at the ways that the earthquake experiences and interpretations thereof were communicated to a wider national and international audience. The first chapter starts us off with a kind of prehistory, a brief prehistory of earthquakes in Japan. And it looks specifically at, um, it traces a kind of genealogy of a very deep rooted belief in moral connections between human action or human inaction and disaster in Japanese history. It focuses on the role of imaging practices in particular, especially in the context of certain kinds of spiritual activities in this um, earlier history. Now, you identify two primary visual genealogies here, two primary um, types of visual tropes that emerge in this earlier part of the story. And these are important because these go on to recur and become important tropes in the visual landscape of um, what happens um, in 1923 and after. One of these um, types of images is um, embodied in scrolls that look at the, or that tie together Disaster and images of disaster with the Buddhist cycle of reincarnation. There's a lot of images of firestorms. So mm. Can you talk a little bit about that imagery? Right. Well, of
0: course, for most of Japanese history, disasters and all kinds of cataclysmic events, ranging from the appearance of comets and all different kinds of things that were out of the ordinary. Famines and, and, and it's important to, to mention that natural and man-made elements, including war, were very much commingled during the pre-modern period in Japan. But the idea that there is a, a moral component to it, that there might be divine intervention, uh, that it was a response from, from some kind of divine entity, that would need to rectify unbalances or, or inequities in the world, and that it was often punishment also for poor leadership or, um, as I said, social inequities, greed, any any number of, of human vices. And so there is a kind of sense of moral recompense that that comes through, through that cycle, but also that um, this idea, of course, that, With destruction always comes renewal, and that through those moments, uh, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that I don't think one thing that really struck me, and I don't know if it's just limited to a Buddhist worldview, was that there's never really an apocalyptic vision. It's always believed that there will be a rebuilding and a renewal within this cycle, and that um, there is this need for whether moral reconstruction, seishin fuko, this idea of moral reconstruction, or yona oshi, uh, world renewal, that those are built into the experience of disaster, that they can be uh, renew- renewing in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned about, particularly about the scrolls, of course, is the... Um, the both fearful and titillating aspects of the macabre aspects of disaster, which is that they're associated with hungry ghosts and demons and other worldly elements that will pull you into purgatory and other layers of Buddhist hell. And so there's a lot of infernal imagery associated with that. And as that moves into the modern period, and probably even in its original instantiations, is visually very uh, intitili- titillating and enticing and thrilling in a fearful kind of way. And so and there's a very big genre of the macabre in Japan. They, they really like the scary, ghostly things, and um, that's very, very enduring. And so you're right, that does continue up.
1: Right. And the other um, set of images that's a really, I mean, just so much fun to look at and to mm. read about, you um, uh, described the trope of the cat. Fish. Yes. Can you talk about the catfish? Because this also becomes really important later on in the book. Yes, yes. The catfish has definitely
0: become my friend. <laughs>
1: um, well, it's nobody knows the exact origins
0: of the association of catfish with earthquakes, but many people think it's probably because they're bottom dwellers. And when they sense se- seismic vibrations even before humans feel them, they get easy. They, they act very erratically. And so there's always been this kind of sense of not just that they're sensing it, but they may actually be causing it, that earth, that catfish became associated with causing earthquakes. And that um, has been, there's been a long history and genealogy very gradually developing of catfish being associated with being under the island of Japan. First it was associated with with cosmic maps and then kind of slowly percolated into this, this larger folkloric belief that there might be this subterranean catfish and that when there was this need for world renewal, the catfish would sense that and would shake Japan on its back and cause earthquake disasters to try to open man's eyes. And what's so fascinating is this, repeated pictorialization of the catfish. And when it really comes into view so uh, vividly is in the 1855 Anse earthquake, when there's actually the the catfish genre of prints, most of them made anonymously because of the concern of censorship. But uh, there are at least 400 varieties of those prints. And in every permutation you can imagine, there's been some very good scholarship on that. But what really struck me is that even if it's not believed in its literal sense of that the catfish was literally a divine intervention or living under the uh, living under the Japan that iconic image of the catfish as as an instigator of, of renewal and social critique and and the, this 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 symbol still had tremendous resonance and is 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 re, re invoked in 1923 in very interesting critical kind of ways so
1: can you talk about some of those ways? Actually, while we're on, sure. um, I mean, this is actually going to happen for listeners later on in the book. So it's a, um, it's a later chapter that looks at this as it reemerges in 1923. But while mm. we're on catfish, let's keep going with catfish. Sure. Well,
0: you have these images of these massive catfish ripping through these fissures in the ground. Uh, One image shows it propelling the new prime minister of Japan up because it's producing kind of newfound political power. That's a very evocative image. Images of the catfish talking, because the catfish is anthropomorphized many times. And so you have the catfish saying, should I open your eyes one more time? Because people aren't even getting the message. The catfish continues to recur a year, two, three years after the earthquake, saying, why aren't you getting this message? Um, most of it in relation to the intransigence of land readjustment, of, of reconstruction. Uh, one of the images that most spoke to me, and I, I think anyone who's interested in the history of gender or, or women's history in Japan, was this incredible image of a catfish man ripping a kimono off a woman, the modern woman. And it's on the cover of Gigi Manga, which was basically the, the funny supplement to Gigi Shinpo, which was a major Tokyo newspaper. It's on the cover done by an incredible visual satirist named Kitazawa Rakuten. Uh, his politics, uh, somewhat dubious, but, but he really lays bare some of these very visceral, critical issues of social change. And one of them was the great... The intense fear of the modern woman and what she represented for Japanese society. And of course, the earthquake itself being a rupture, the possibility that things would never go back. So this catfish man is literally taking off her frivolous jacket, her frivolous kimono and handing her one that is sober and non ostentatious. And he's, and he's really saying, you're the cause of this. And, and, it's your restlessness. And, and actually, this goes back to some geomantic understandings that in the yin and yang divide, the female elements, um, that restlessness of the female element can uh, disturb the balance of the elements and cause earthquakes as well. So you see two different philosophical views coming into that. But of course, it's really about that historical moment of the, of modernity when the modern woman is shaking everything up and threatening the household, threatening Man, the masculinity of Japan. So it's a, uh, it's it's a really and and it's very violent, and that's what really struck me about
1: it. And that connection between the earthquake and disaster and modernity is also going to be something that is a recurring theme that we're going to see later in the chapters as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So as we look into um, the the next chapters, you are looking at um, the ways that media coverage actually produced the event right so produced i think in many in many senses it's okay. a really kind sort of wonderfully um, multi um, mul- multifaceted word there produced the event known as the great kanto earthquake by creating a, a, what you call a visual lexicon of disaster yes. and this chapter chapter 2 in particular um, looks at different Kinds of media that are helping to produce this lexicon. So one of those media is photography, mm-hmm. and there's a really wonderful discussion of um, the perspective of aerial photography and creating a certain um, image of and vision of an experience of translation of the earthquake. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about photography in this context? Um, it's you um, and and in many ways in this chapter, it's a really interesting medium, um, both because of issues of authority and control. So photography in this context.
0: Yes. And of course, all of us think of photography as the dominant medium, at least of the 20th century and maybe into the 21st. And you're right. it, It is connected to authority. It's connected to its own technological determinacy in the sense that it, at least for many at this time, represented the real Mm -hmm. and that idea of truth. And so it was the touchstone of understanding what was documentary. But what we realize in looking at the photographic image, and I call it the photographic eye, is that those images are, as you said, produced. They're manipulated. They're never total, yet they're trying to do certain things. So aerial images at, at that kind of high the, 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 the distant aerial perspective produces this sense of totality, but it never entirely has that. And of course, it's also distant from the ground eye view. So it's giving this commanding gaze. It's providing this sense of of control in an, an uncontrollable situation. And it's not coincidental that it was used by Navy, usually by by military aircraft as part of reconnaissance and disaster relief. But the, the other thing is is that it's partial and that so that tension between the idea of a totalizing view that will help you understand the totality of event and its inability to really provide that there's no way to provide a total view of any particular event is a really interesting element. Then, of course, scale, the nature of how scale is represented, whether you take an aerial photo, a photo from the top of a building, uh, you take it from ground's eye, it changes the nature of our, our relationship with the subjects depicted. Are we supposed to empathize with them? Are we supposed to see it as a kind of urbanistic of dis- Is it civilizational? Is it urbanistic? Is it individual? I think you, when you go from those different perspectives, it really creates a different affect in the viewer. Um, but of course, the legitimacy of these images produced for news organizations gave them that veracity, and so they, they do have a tremendous impact. Um, and then there are images that just create these tropes or icons of that no one will ever, for instance, focusing on one particular place that is mm-hmm. iconic, a uh, particular view. Um, and, and those images circulate, and you see those motifs picked up by artists and other media. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know they're looking at that and they're they're absorbing those those kinds of images. Now
1: some of these images were actually images of dead bodies, and you talk about this um, uh, in, in many in its many different resonances, um, particularly in this chapter. For you in producing the book, especially because one of the themes that you Sorry. raise here is the ways um, that photographs of dead bodies engaged a kind of voyeuristic, right? Sure. When you were putting together the book, how did you negotiate um, this issue of what images of dead bodies you were going to include in the book? And can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, one thing that really struck me about the difference, say, between now and then was the very visible and very extensive pictorialization and imaging of dead bodies and how that circulated very widely, particularly, and this may seem odd to contemporary contemporary, audiences in postcards. Of course, postcards were more than just touristic types of media. They were um, a kind of soft news, and they were used in the Russo-Japanese War extensively. But that you're right. There's no way. What I realized is when you're dealing with disaster and you're dealing with images of death, there is voyeurism is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. And we are always in a precarious relationship with those because we are drawn to them. We have to realize their aesthetic their aestheticization, why that we're drawn to those things and recognize it rather than try to somehow repress it. And the the sheer abundance of images of dead bodies at that time told me that this was very important. So I knew that I couldn't sanitize it. But nowadays you wouldn't see that we really have not other than certain websites where you will that that really t- traffic in those kinds of images the mass media sanitizes much more than they ever did before mm-hmm. and so those those images were there and what i felt was rather than just focusing in on just the, the magnitude of death which was which which was horrible was to see the ways in which the what places were associated with particular bodies and what kinds of bodies are shown and what do those bodies mean in these contexts. And for instance, so the repeated use of the Yoshiwara section in relation to showing dead bodies of women, and this was the licensed prostitution district. It was the longstanding pleasure quarters going back to Edo, so it had a resonance of being associated with libidinal economy of sex workers and, and also a cachet So the fact that it focuses on that, to me, said there's an interesting overlay here, and showing those bodies and the repetition of those bodies was significant. So I tried to focus on that. Um, But as you mentioned in your intro also, what wasn't shown was very important. And, of course, over 6,000 Korean colonial subjects were murdered, intentionally murdered, either by vigilantes or by representatives of the state. And there was a press ban on depicting them, and so they could not be depicted. But what happens is, in the generic images of death, of course those bodies are there. Mm-hmm. And so for those who would know, you could tell a body that was killed and massacred and one that was killed in the earthquake very distinctly, and people discussed that. Those bodies were very... very uh, Identifiable, But photography equalizes them and makes it kind of a universal tragedy, which is part of the narrative that the government tries to portray. Oh, these are unfortunate victims and everybody dies in this catastrophe, not that it was a targeted kind of massacre. So I think photography does certain kinds of violences, it makes certain kinds of constitu- constituencies invisible. And yet they are visible as well.
1: So it's a complex issue. But <laughs> and this sort of this theme of invisibility is really, I think, crucial here. And you talk about um, in this uh, chapter, chapter of the book not just invisibility in the context of the massacre of Koreans, but mm-hmm. also um, you mentioned that the aftermath of the earthquake saw several strategic political assassinations, which also were kind of. Right. Rendered less visible because of the you know, the other sort of visual tropes of the earthquake in the media, so right. really, really interesting part here. Thank you now, um, as we sort of move into the book there 's a really wonderful chapter on ruins and earthquake ruins um, in which you are um, talking about um, various aspects of the the sublime and this um, and so let 's get into that for a moment. Mm-hmm. We get there through a chapter on um uh, disaster as spectacle where you're invoking, and I won't ask you to talk too much about Mm -hmm. this, but I'll just mention for listeners, you're invoking um, some of the things that actually came up a little bit earlier, the imagery of the earthquake compared to wartime imagery and the ways that those tropes actually echoed each other and mirrored each other. You mentioned in this chapter um, analogies between modernism and modernity, disaster and spectacle, which is really important. And we see in this chapter also um, the way that the earthquake is depicted in film. Mm Mm-hmm. So these are really important themes that come up in this chapter, and that we'll see some of them later on. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the most perhaps iconic for for a reader who didn't know much about any of this moments of this chapter was the moment in which you invoke the decapitation of the the this building, the twelve stories. Mm-hmm. So, can you speak a little bit to that? Because this is also um, something that becomes what you call the ultimate modern ruins. So it leads us into the the ruins part as well.
0: Yes. Well, as I mentioned, one thing that imaging does is it selects and crystallizes particular sites and locales that are associated with the modern city and its destruction. And the 12 stories was the first skyscraper in Japan. It was 12 stories. uh, And uh, it was actually the second largest building in the world at the time it was built. So it really was this symbol of soaring modernity. Uh, Of course, it was in Asakusa, which was also an entertainment district. So in a sense, it itself is a symbol of the creative destruction of modernity because it replaced an earlier kind of Shtamachi, low city Asakusa and was transforming Asakusa at the time. So the fact that it cracked in half and fell with people inside became such a symbol of the potential reversal of the progress of modernity the linear progress of modernity and also Japan's own uh, national trajectory towards modernization and so it, it really became so focused there and what i what i was again struck with is by is how even buildings can become anthropomorphized they can take on human affect and it's very clear that it's meant to evoke empathy And also to resonate with the way people felt about their own modern nation state. So the building is is so much more than just a symbol of the city. It's a symbol of the feelings (laughs) and its own sense of haplessness after this. And and it's just everywhere. You cannot get away from this building if you're looking at uh, if you're looking at images,
1: I know this is going to sound or this is going to strike readers as comparable to something that you explicitly um, mentioned mm. in this chapter. You can't really not, right? I mean, you you invoke right, the the, towers, exactly <laughs> right. the the nine eleven. What were um and and, and also thinking about the anthropomorphism of, or the anthropomorphization of buildings, and in particular the case of the 9-11 is something that I think George Lakoff has written about visual analogy and the way that the circulation Mm. of these images actually created a certain kind of response to that disaster. And really interesting resonance here with visual um, accounts of this particular building and this particular disaster. Briefly, um, this in addition to the the phenomenon that we talked about early on, the sort of resonances and the framing of this particular disaster with the 2011 mm-hmm. um, earthquake, what were some of the challenges for you in working on a book with so many contemporary resonances? I mean, this is, on the one hand, this is um, really helpful in that it's going to speak to the, the real lived experience of so many readers who may not otherwise... Think that they're interested in Japan, but here yeah. it's really touching on a really basic, um, common, you know, recent history. At the same time, this presents some serious challenges for you as a historian that's, who's very, like, specifically rooted and very careful to be very rooted in this particular time in this particular place. So, right?
0: Yes, it is. It's an
1: enormous challenge, and it's that
0: the balance between the universal and the particular. Mm-hmm. But I've always felt that understanding these kinds of resonances in their historical context makes them that much more important and uh, and and seeing the parallels in particular dynamics, the ways in which, for instance, disaster provides opportunities for people to, implement new visions and that there is always a sense of opportunism that's inherent in disaster or the way that images always make us feel and do particular things in relation to catastrophic events. So they're not neutral. They're, they implicate us. They make us do things. So I think you can look at larger structural things and see a lot of applicability without saying 1923 and 2011 or, or 2001 are the same. And I wouldn't want to do that because, of course, the issues of global capital, the nature of terrorism, those things are they're distinctive. But on the other hand, there are ways of seeing the use of those events for particular, for particular types of things. Uh, Post disaster um, agendas that that I think warrant looking over history.
1: Definitely. And you, um, in your invocation just now of disasters, also in a, in a way creating opportunities. This leads mm-hmm. us into um, where the book goes. So after um, discussions of ruins as scenes of. Um, magnificent destruction, as you yes. put it, producing horror and fascination as a way of, pro- of providing material for thinking about the moral consequences um, of individual action with respect to the nation and also the, the landscape. Um, we move into discussions of the, the ways that images and narratives of resilience, as you put it, claimed the disaster mm-hmm. for different social, political, and cultural purposes. So you look in this chapter... Um, at three emblems in particular of the Kanto earthquake, as as you call it, lenses for viewing the tension between heroic, the heroic and the painful past of the disaster. We've already mm. talked about one of these tropes, the catfish. Yes, um, there are two other tropes that come up here. One is um, the trope of the refugee, and then the trope of the barracks. So, can you speak a little bit to these two, or uh, and in whatever way that most inspires you about these these issues?
0: Sure. What I noticed looking, and these were three dominant tropes, but of course there are others, that there's always a tension between the desire to promote a kind of resilient, altruistic, heroic image of a disaster and its survivors and the tensions to see the fissures that those disasters cause that or if reveal, really. They reveal all those socioeconomic inequities that were there and are exacerbated by disaster situations. And so they both bring people together and tear them apart at the same time. And that really struck me, images of the refugees where you have images of mothers and children where they're almost like Madonna images, Madonna in Christ, and they're so exalted in the sense of their... Their fortitude and their ability to rebuild the, the nature of solidarity. And it was very real. But of course, at what expense? Because the, the, what is not told is that the same refugees were victims and victimizers. The vigilantes, the, the vigilante squads, which were actually deputized by the mayor and the governor, the, the chief of police, to kind of take care of, of local security issues were the main perpetrators of those massacres, and even the police themselves, the special hire police, killed some of those leftist prominent leftist Mm -hmm. activists that you mentioned. So within this, it is not always, even though there's a dominant narrative, when you look at one particular, through this lens of the refugee, you see the tensions of those two identities coming through. And then the barracks, interestingly, of course, um, are a symbol for many of of a renewed camaraderie. Some people on the left, including the group I worked on for my first book, Mavo, really saw it as a kind of new proletarian spirit that closed down very quickly, unfortunately, but they really saw it in this emancipatory euphoria that established social relations might be, erased in order to rebuild something and they got very interested in barrack decoration as a kind of liberatory street art. Very contemporary. And uh, yeah, so interesting to take advantage of that temporary space, that artistic space. And and so disasters provide opportunities for people who don't have them before and they can be very liberatory as well. And so the barracks represented that. They also represented community and recon, reconfigurations of community. They also could represent squalor and slums, the fear of the, which had been already articulated in critical writing about how the city was a, a, place, a den of iniquity. Yeah. And so there's, there's so many different perspectives that you can see these particular these particular
1: things from, and that's really what fascinated me. And there's also some really fascinating um, sources that you're looking at in this chapter, so I'll just kind of signal these for listeners so that they know there are, um, in addition to lots of different media, you look at private sketches, you look at satire and humor, and you look at children's drawings of vigilante groups, which is just a totally fascinating visual archive, just on its own. Mm. There are also... um, uh, also board games. Yes. The, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was yes. board games, um, images of naked bathers as a kind yes. of visual trope and this um the account of the barrack decoration company that you were just alluding to is totally fascinating just on its own um uh, just by itself. So there's a lot of really wonderful um juxtaposition of different kind of Different kinds of um, media that let us see the consistent use of these and the circulation of these still, you know, consistent visual tropes throughout these media. So it's totally fascinating. Thank you.
0: And, you know, actually, in the in the bather images, you really see the art historian in me coming out because we can't we can't resist a nude. (laughs) We're always looking for the nude. And I was so struck because if anyone who knows the post-impressionists and knows their their use of this kind of modern nude, the disaster muse of the of the naked bather just really it really stood out to me.
1: It's really, really striking in that chapter. And from that chapter, we Mm -hmm. move toward, we move from um, this this one set of attempts to reclaim disaster to another set of attempts to reclaim disaster. And this is the visual rhetoric of reconstruction. So this chapter looks at the ways that the language of, I think, as you put it, high modernist, kind of a rational urban design, comes into conflict with other modes of seeing the city. Now, one of the major um, themes that comes up here in the phenomenon that generates a visual archive that you describe is this reconstruction plan Mm. by um, Mayor Goto. Can you talk a little (laughs) bit about that?
0: Yes, Goto became a major figure in my analysis. He was everywhere. And of course, he really was dedicated to rebuilding the city of Tokyo. And so I think in many ways, Tokyo would not have survived had it not been for Gotō, because there were many movements to remove the capital, as there always are whenever there's a major earthquake. So I do credit him with being the architect of this mammoth reconstruction plan. But that being said, him his experience having been governor general of Taiwan and being very much, as I said, this high modernist technocrat, he really didn't care about the little people so much. I think he really thought, okay, I'll really move everybody back into a a rationalized grid. We'll buy everyone's land back and then we'll sell it back to them obviously not at market value, Mm -hmm. and will move people as we need to to make this a modern city because, frankly, people did not like Tokyo even before the earthquake. They thought it had all of the vestiges of a castle town of Edo. It was impractical. It could never be a modern metropolis. So for Gotō, he had been lobbying for this prior to the earthquake when he was mayor of Tokyo before, and then he was home minister after the, during the earthquake so for him it was a great opportunity uh, unfortunately he ran into some obstacles one was that it was the parliamentarians realized that it went against the idea of private property just to take people's land and then sell it back to them two they didn't have nearly enough money to try to do that And three, the the people were squatting on their land. There was a social life of the city, and he did not really see it that way. For him, the city was an economic animal. It was an economic machine that needed to be rationalized. And so I think you need big planners to do that kind of sweeping change, but on the other hand, it really erases so much of the city before. And what's great is is that Goto did affect, in a sense, bring in the modern metropolis, but on the other hand... Uh, he wasn't able to, to realize his full plans because of that resistance. So it's, it's quite fascinating.
1: Now this, um, the visual imagery that comes out of this uh, depiction of the reconstruction process is actually really interesting, and it creates a way of looking at the imagery of kind of what we might call rational scientific imagery, right? So you talk yes. about in this chapter the importance of um, pie charts and graphs and diagrams. and Can you speak a little bit to that? Because that's actually really crucial. And it, it's one of the ways that um, perhaps surprisingly for listeners or readers who might look at this and say, um, oh, Japanese history, I'm not really interested in Japanese history. It's actually really relevant to the history of science. Yes. Um, so for potential historians of science, can you speak a little bit to that part of the imagery?
0: Data is visualized, and it is compelling in its visual legitimacy, how you display data and what it purports to say, and that it has a kind of bulwark of rationalized scientific, something behind it uh, gives it this kind of credibility and legitimacy that's very powerful. And so just putting the same thing in pie charts and graphs and various things makes it kind of statistical and authoritative. And what's so amazing is that has an aesthetic in and of itself, and uh, actually some scholars have have written some interesting books, even practitioners have written interesting books about how to display data. Mm -hmm. And so to me that was absolutely fascinating, and I really felt what it was trying to do, what the narrative was, and science as well. Seismography, when we think about seismology and what it does, we don't think about seismography, about what it says, how it creates a universal comparable visual language of displacement of uh, of of trauma whatever it is that it it creates another kind of universal language that is buttressed by science and science the term kagaku in japan during this time kagaku teki scientific was ubiquitous and very very powerful so this idea that something could be rational and could be scientific gave it great credibility
1: and this comparability that you just mentioned is mm-hmm. key and one of the things that you are um that you mentioned specifically in the discussion of seismograms here, is the way that it made this earthquake visually comparable to what was happening in other places, which makes this, or integrates what's happening in Japan explicitly and visually into a global story and, and is, is has its own kind of power, not just for us right Absolutely. now thinking about it, but at that time. Yes. Um, so that's a, a really important part of this, I think. I agree. So as we look at, as we move toward the end of the book, um, the final, well, the penultimate chapter before the epilogue looks at the tensions between um, two kind of pairs of phenomena, right? sacred remembrance and historical remembrance, Mm -hmm. and also between memorialization of the past and celebration of the future. So we've spoken a little bit to the issue of um, the invisibility of Korean victims, the memorialization of Korean victims again comes up in this chapter. And I Mm -hmm. just want to signal that because it's a really important part of this story. One of the centerpieces though of this chapter, and it's something that we see again, um, leading us into the very end of the book, is Earthquake Memorial Hall. Mm. Now, the plans for the structure change dramatically, and that change is also is, is very telling and is really interesting. So can you say a bit about, as a way to sort of bring our story toward its conclusion, the genesis of Earthquake Memorial Hall and then the afterlife, also, of Earthquake Memorial Hall, which gets which has another <laughs> life and another, um, right, later on. Many afterlives. Exactly. Exactly, yes. Well, the it was felt very soon
0: after the earthquake that there should be some public memorial to the over 100,000 people who died and that it was a civ- it needed to be a civic site there had been no tradition of burying people in any it, everything people were buried in private familial burial sites so this whole idea of of a civic memorial was very new to japan not new in the european or the american context but certainly new Uh, In Japan. And of course, it came up against the bereaved families, the idea that there are different stakeholders in this memorial process. Uh, One was the idea that they had an open jury competition and they picked a a suitable, very prominent young modernist who actually, incidentally, worked on the Shiseido headquarters. Uh, And that may not seem like an appropriate person to select for, for an earthquake memorial, but he was very prominent at that time. And he Depict, and he designed something that would have been more in the international style of neoclassicism mixed with some some modernism, or and people just rejected that plan uh, even though it had been juried and selected by prominent people in the field and one yes of
1: the, mm-hmm. to, to Jenna, one of the really interesting things again for visual culture is that at least if I'm remembering correctly from the book it was at the moment that the plan was visualized in three dimensions mm-hmm. and they saw a model right? Mm-hmm. That, that that the opinion changed so that's also really interesting just from the perspective right. of the seeing media. and the evidence there exactly, exactly. and I,
0: I haven't necessarily been able to that's my sense is that once it really became Known that it was visualized and circulated, that people understood that this was this was just not going to be uh, was not for them, and they lobbied. So the idea that there was pushback from the city and that the, the, from particular constituencies within the city, particularly the bereaved families and the Buddhist clergy who supported them, which makes us understand that there weren't there wasn't one s- single interest in the memorial or the narrative of the memorial and. You alluded to this tension between the desire to celebrate reconstruction and moving the city forward, its, a, it's amazing ability to reconstruct and move forward and create the new metropolis, and a need to memorialize the past and the loss. And those are actually in conflict in this building. And it's not entirely resolved, but you see that conflict. And of course, the added level of a secular narrative that the state wants to promote, that the city wants to promote for its own resilience, and the sacred narrative of of spirits and of after lives and of appeasing those spirits is so important. But what? But they do come together in the sense that appeasing these spirits and working within the sacred does, in a sense, secure the civic life of the city. And if you see those in in tandem, in fact, they're not at odds, but the interests are in some ways. And and that becomes very apparent to to the designers and the builders and the fundraisers, which is why they realize very quickly that the earthquake Memorial Hall cannot be the historical site of Objects and a museum. It really can't be a museum because it is a sanctuary and it houses over 35,000 bones. It's an ossuary with, with actual human bones in it. So it's a sacred site. And those, the pure sacrality of it creates problems of access and, and, and meaning. So what they do is they decide a year later they're gonna build a separate museum on the same in the same complex to try to be more historical, more narrative. But again, the objects that they carefully culled from the populace, these what I call venerable debris, and I think because it does in a sense stand in for the distressed uh, bodies, the bodies in pain of the people who died, these these warped bottles and horribly deformed objects and images of, of terrible trauma, those images go into this museum and they evoke the history that's in the Memorial Hall. So they can never entirely dilute that sense of, of the past and the trauma even while the, the, the overwhelming narrative in that building is one of reconstruction, resilience, in the future. Um, so I think what they try to do is harness that sacrifice and say, these people sacrificed themselves for the modern Tokyo. That's not exactly the way it happened, but if it, in effect, that's, that's the narrative they try to create.
1: Now, the same Memorial Hall becomes another site of remembrance, and it becomes a site of remembrance mm-hmm. for the great Tokyo air raids of 1945, and it becomes renamed. So can you, as a way of maybe bringing this story mm-hmm. to a close before we wrap up, can you talk about that transformation? Because it takes what's happening here sort of mm-hmm. forward. And-
0: yes, it's one of these ironic happenstances of history that after the bombings of Tokyo, which again killed upward of 100,000 people, destroyed the city, in many ways evoked the 23 quake, that they didn't know what to do with the victims of that. And those victims were initially just interred in public parks out of expediency. And then during the Allied occupation, the bereaved families who were very distressed, again, about the souls of their their family members, because these one thing you have to understand in Japan is that you're never entirely dead. <laughs> the dead enact things upon the living. And so there was so much unease about the status of these people who were killed and the need to appease their souls and to, to, to commemorate them. And so what was what happened was they did this very grisly um, ex- excavation of these bodies, and they had nowhere to put them, and the Allied occupation, for obvious reasons, did not want to create a memorial to the, 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 civ- the civilian war dead. So what they did was they said, well, here, we have a memorial here. Just put them in this building. Not even questioning what the problematics are of putting... Wartime dead and and earthquake dead. It just was well. It's a dead. It's a it's a memorial to dead souls, and so they interred all of those ex, those exhumed bodies in this memorial. So it's and they also reconfigured the second floor of the exhibition to highlight the daikushu, the 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 fire bombings, and so it's a very fractured site of memory, and it has these overlays within it. Um, there are many interesting parallels between the victim victimized kind of politics that even come back to 23. Mm -hmm. And of course, the overlay of within that site kind of beckons to the way this visual lexicon of disaster continues up through 1945. Even I talk a little bit about Hiroshima and Nagasaki as Mm well.
1: That's right. And we see um, sort of threads coming together, the importance of, or the the visual reckoning with technology and modernity and the the uneasy relationship between the individual and the nation and all of these threads Mm -hmm. in very, very different um, disaster contexts actually come together and take these Um, resonances that you're showing early on and I think push the story into the future too while still being sensitive to the very, um, very carefully sensitive to the historical specificity of each one of these, um, each one of these disasters. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. Um, This has really been a pleasure. It's an amazing book. Thank you. And even though we've talked now for an hour, um, there's a lot in the book that we didn't have a chance to cover. It's an extraordinarily rich book, both in terms of just being an archive and also um, the cases and the arguments that you're making. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
0: Well, uh, I would just like to – I think you've done an excellent job, and I'm very gratified that you thought the book was interesting. And I I would just reamplify how important it is, I think, for people who are interested in visuality and interested in what imaging practices do, and they think of it as image producers, as historical agents, that you don't have to be interested in Japan to take away a lot about – the more universal and more broadly applicable elements of this book to a lot of different a lot of different situations, so I would just encourage people to to think about it even on a, a broader theo- theoretical or conceptual level as well.
1: Great, and I'll <laughs> echo that. <as> well. <laughs> So now that the book is out, and again, congratulations. It's a a beautiful book and a really thoughtful book. What's next for you? What projects are inspiring you at the moment? Well, I mentioned that there
0: was book two that was supposed to get written when this got written, and I will return to that. I I have worked extensively on it, and in some ways it does pick up some of the things from this book, but it's, it's actually on commercial art, graphic design, and design as a professional sphere in Japan, particularly as it relates to corporate advertising and state property so I'm going to go back to that with gusto, and I have worked extensively with MIT on their Visualizing Cultures website doing so the unit on Shiseido, and so that's just one tiny little part of that, but I am very interested, again, I, I'm always looking at what images do, and I was very struck by how much what we think of as high art aesthetics or avant-garde aesthetics were disseminated through the corporate sphere and into advertising and really innovative advertising during this period. And that extended both from the metropole into the colonies. So that's what I'll definitely do. And I'm going to go across the war. That's my new, um, I, I think this transwar history of continuities, and it's absolutely, absolutely vivid in design are so strong. So I'll go up to the 1964 Olympics.
1: Right. Well, it sounds <laughs> great. And it also picks up some of, um, we didn't talk about this specifically, but there's also um, a, a treatment of advertising images, and it, specifically in the context of insurance companies, I think. Yes. To, so. Well, yes. thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and thank best of luck with your current projects. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.